Psalms 2, the reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we pray now that as we've read this psalm together, that you would minister to each and every one of us. Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would instruct us, that you would reveal more of yourself to us. Lord, we pray that we would find ourselves among those who are blessed because each and every one of us are choosing to find refuge in you. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet, that it is a light to our paths. And so this morning, we long for light. Lord, we want to be guided by you in your love. And so speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think at many points in U.S. history, it's been the experience of Christians to read Psalm 2 and identify with the psalmist. By that I mean, identify with being in a position of strength and safety and security and really being blessed of God rather than identifying with the nations that rage, which we read about in the opening of this psalm. That's always been nations out there, or more likely as you read Psalm 2, it's been empires and kingdoms and nations throughout history. But not this week. Our nation is raging. People within it are plotting and scheming as to how they can assume power and secure their authority and privilege quite apart from God. And so although we are reading and studying the Psalms, systematically just working our way through, I believe with all my heart that God in his providence has led us to this Psalm at this point in time. Psalm 2 is a scathing rebuke of human power and human authority. Because Psalm 2 points to a God who looks at even the most powerful among us, the kings of the earth. And he laughs at them. He laughs at their illusions of strength and control. And so friend, what does that say about the rest of us? The penetrating question for us this morning as we study Psalm 2 together is going to be this. What kingdom will you align yourself with? What kingdom will you align yourself 
with? Put differently, whose authority will you yield to with your life? Whose promises of strength and control are you going to trust? Is it going to be God and his anointed one? Or is it going to be some other person, some other thing, some lesser king or kingdom that's attached to this world? Now, like Psalm 1, you can notice that Psalm 2 comes with no title attached to it. This is actually unique in the Psalms. Most of the Psalms do have a little title that was written there. In fact, look over at Psalm 3 if you have your Bible open. Uh, You'll see it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And those titles are are helpful because they they generally can give us a little bit of a, a glimpse into maybe the historical context in which that Psalm was written. Now, again, like Psalm 1, Psalm 2 just doesn't come with one of those. We don't get any kind of historical context attached to this psalm. And so it's difficult for us to sort of say, well, it was written during this time and this is who he's referring to. But I, along with many Bible commentators, believe that's intentional on God's part because as you're going to see, this psalm is an evergreen psalm. This is a psalm that is meant to be applied throughout every era of human history and teach us again about the illusion of earthly power and authority. Now, Psalm 2 can be classified in different ways. Uh, It actually fits into numerous genres in the book of Psalms. Uh, The primary way to classify Psalm 2 is by calling it a royal psalm, a royal psalm. What that means is that this psalm focuses on Israel's king. And oftentimes when you study royal psalms, like here in Psalm 2, The psalmist looks beyond the earthly king in Israel to Israel's true king, who is God himself. This makes sense because in Israel, the human king was always understood as just God's earthly representative. Israel always understood that the Lord, that Yahweh was their true king and that they were his subjects. In addition to being a royal psalm, many modern commentators see Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. Now, has anybody here seen the movie Frozen? I'm assuming most of us have. If you've seen Frozen, then you know what coronation day is, right? I would sing you the song, but I'll spare you that because it's not going to help us worship today. I can guarantee you that. Um, But coronation day is the day when a new leader, a new king or queen is installed and that, that crown is placed upon their head. And so again... Uh, According to this view of this being a coronation psalm, it's possible that this psalm was used in the coronation ceremonies of Israel's kings. In fact, some commentators go so far as to say that this would have been sort of the liturgy for that ceremony, that different members in the congregation, as they gathered to coronate the king, would have read different parts of this script here in Psalm 2. But we just don't know for sure. Finally, we need to understand that Psalm 2 is categorized not just as a royal psalm or a coronation psalm, but a messianic psalm. Messianic psalms are very important. There's not a ton of them, but messianic psalms are psalms that look to the Messiah, who we as Christians understand to be Jesus. You'll notice that the psalm references the Lord's anointed in verse 2. That word anointed literally is Messiah. And so again, messianic psalms are psalms that look forward to God's anointed one, God's 
Messiah, who again, we understand is Jesus. Now, if you look at the structure of this psalm, you'll notice that it's broken into four fairly equal parts, uh, three verses apiece. And really the divisions of these three verses are centered on the speech of different persons throughout this psalm. And so I'm going to put this on the screen for us, but notice the structure of the psalm. Verses one through three, in these verses we see the rebellious speak. Then in verses four through six, we're going to see that God speaks. Verses seven through nine, we're going to find the king, the anointed one speaks. And then finally in verses 10 through 12, the narrator, the the author of the psalm is going to speak and share his concluding thoughts. So I'm going to use this structure to help teach this psalm to us this morning. We'll begin then with the rebellious speaking, speaking in verses 1 through 3. Again, please follow along with me. We read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. So here's their words. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now this psalm opens with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And although it begins with a question, the psalmist is not expecting you to answer. Instead, the question is really just an expression of bewilderment. It's sort of like when something crazy happens in your life and you say this, you say, what in the world? What in the world is a question, but you're not asking a question really. You're just expressing your amazement or your shock or your bewilderment with something that's going on. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's asking this question because he is totally shocked. He's like, what are they doing? What is going on here? He's shaking his head at the leaders of this world. And the picture here that he's looking at is a picture in which the powerful leaders of this world are plotting and conspiring against God and against his anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three types of people who were generally anointed. And what that means is that they would, at a point when they were being brought into their public office or ministry, they would have oil actually poured on top of their head. They were being anointed with oil, which was symbolic of them being set apart for the calling or the responsibility that they were given. And in the Old Testament, these types of people would have been the prophets and the priests and the kings in Israel. And here it's clear in Psalm 2 that the anointed one that is being referred to is the king that's being installed in Israel. Now, during the days of the Davidic kings, surrounding nations did not regard the Lord's anointed one, nor did they regard the Lord himself. Most often they disregarded him. And so they're pictured here as conspiring against the king of Israel rather than acknowledging his authority and his primacy as God's anointed one. Of all of the messianic psalms, Psalm 2 is sort of the gold standard. This is like the supreme messianic psalm. And we're going to see why as we unpack it. It's not surprising then that the apostles of Jesus quoted 
this psalm, Psalm 2, numerous times in the New Testament, and they directly applied it to Jesus, our Messiah. For example, when they considered the events and the people leading up to the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, they associated them with these verses from Psalm 2. Check this out in Acts chapter 4. They're going to quote Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2, and then they're going to directly connect it to Jesus and the events that took place at the end of his life. This is Acts 4, 25 through 27. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So there's the direct quote. And then here's their commentary. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So notice what they're doing. They're looking at the events that took place in Jesus's life, that the powers that be at that time were conspiring against God's anointed one and they took him and they arrested him and they crucified him on a cross and they were saying that's what Psalm 2 was ultimately pointing to. Of course it had a an initial meaning when it was written but it was always intended to point to God's ultimate Messiah who of course is Jesus of Nazareth. So through the apostles' handling of this psalm, we can learn something about how we're to read the Old Testament scriptures as Christians. Well, the first worshipers who would have studied this psalm saw in these verses a picture of those who opposed Israel's human rulers. The early church saw in this psalm another application as a picture of those who opposed Israel's true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you and I are on safe ground when we read this psalm as prophetically looking forward to Jesus the Christ. And so just as there were those 2,000 years ago who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, who wanted to resist his authority and his claim over their life, and they actually nailed him to a cross, so too there are plenty of people in the world today who want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. Submission to Jesus, to them, feels like bondage and slavery. It feels like what verse 3 says. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These people want someone else to be their authority. And so they do everything that they can to resist the authority and the rule of God. But according to the psalmist, people like that are plotting in vain. Why? Well, this brings us to the next section where God speaks in verses four through six. The answer to the why question, why is it in vain if you are trying to resist the authority of the Lord's anointed? Why is that the case? Well, the answer is this, that behind the earthly king of Israel sat the true king, God himself. And notice from Verse 4, that God is not merely the king over Israel who is enthroned in the city of Jerusalem or Zion, but that God is the king of the entire universe and he is right now enthroned in heaven above. And he sits on his throne. He looks out upon the world. 
The psalmist tells us that he laughs. As God sits and watches the powerful of this earth through every epoch of human history, plotting and scheming and trying to manipulate the outcome of human history, God sits on his throne and he looks at it all and he laughs. In some ways, this reminds me of when I play wrestle with my kids. Judah and Jace, my two older boys, they always want to wrestle. And they'll come and they'll attack me and they'll jump at me and they begin plotting and scheming. Okay, J- Judah, you grab his legs and I'm gonna jump off the bed onto his back and I just kind of chuckle and I laugh because it's cute. And you know what? All of their plotting and scheming is no threat to me. At any moment, dad could rise up from the dog pile and push these boys off and take control of the fight again. And so I just laugh. It's cute to me. It's non-threatening to me. And the psalmist here is saying, when the Lord looks at the mightiest among us, those people that rule over nations, those people that strike fear into our hearts, the Lord looks at it all and he laughs at it. But notice that God's laugh is a little bit different than my laugh. It's not playful laughter. It's mocking laughter. The word derision there in verse 4 means mockery or ridicule. Mockery or ridicule. In other words, God laughs at these rulers of the earth. Those who have power over us on this earth, God laughs at them not because he thinks they're funny. He laughs at them because he thinks they're pathetic. Notice that God is not in heaven, nervously pacing back and forth, strategizing about how he might overcome their plans to resist his will for human history, to resist his plan of total conquest through Jesus Christ. He's not stressed. No, he's sitting on his throne comfortably and he's laughing at their pathetic attempts to usurp his authority. The kings of the nations surrounding Israel some 3,000 years ago were just like pieces sitting on a checkered board. They're talking amongst themselves about how they might conquer the other members on the checkerboard. And guess what? The Lord God is like us when we look at the checkerboard. And at any moment, he could just toss the whole thing upside down and send every one of those pieces scattering in a different direction. Those who are mightiest among us are nothing before the Lord. Pilate and Herod and the Jewish religious leaders 2,000 years ago who thought that they could take matters into their own hands and they could resist what God was doing through Jesus. We can kill him. We can crucify him. Even Satan himself, who was a part of that plot and inspired Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, who thought that he had trapped the Lord. He knew how he could stop God's plan. The Lord looks at him and laughs. Again, he's like a chess piece on a board and God is the one that's controlling the whole thing. People today all across the world who snub Jesus, who resist his rule in their lives, who try to figure out ways to say no to the Lord, they want to be on the throne of their own life or they're looking to other people or power structures to gain control. The Lord looks at it from heaven seated comfortably and in charge on his throne. And he laughs a laughter that is not playful. Again, it's laughing at how pathetic we are. 
Now notice that in this next verse, when it talks about in verse 5, the Lord now speaking, that there's a couple of words there that describe the way that God feels as he's speaking. Their rebellion against his rightful and just reign ignites his fury and his wrath. Now, those are not words that we should just gloss over in the Bible or ignore. Those are words that are very powerful. Again, if we can look at some of the powerful rulers of this earth and, and, and experience terror at the thought of, well, what if they came after me? What if they were going to do something bad to me? How much more terrifying should the idea of the wrath and the fury of a God who sits comfortably on his throne and mocks the leaders of this earth be to us? They're plotting, they're scheming, their attempts to control the outcomes of history and resist God's will in the world ignites his fury and his wrath. And it's not just because they're raising their fist at their creator, which is heinous enough. It's worse than that. It, it ignites God's wrath because what they're doing in raising their fist against him is they are resisting the rule of a perfectly good and just and righteous God. God is perfectly good. We sang about it earlier. He is perfect in all of his ways. Everything that he does is done in justice and equity. Everything that God intends for us in this world is for our own good as his creatures created in his image. And rather than humbly submitting to his perfect and loving and kind leadership, we're raising our fists to the heavens saying, I want nothing to do with you. And we're plotting and we're scheming and we're sinning and we're abusing and we're oppressing people as human beings on planet earth and it ignites God's fury and God's wrath and he says to us not on my watch this wickedness this rebellion among human beings merits God's wrath and so God has a word for us he has a word for the world in verses five and six then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This reminds me of Psalm 46.6. It says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. God in his wrath now speaks in verses 5 and 6. And what is it that God says that strikes terror and fear into the hearts of these rebellious kings? Here's what he says. He says that he has set his king on the throne in Jerusalem. It's essentially God's way of saying, I have put my person in charge and there is no one who can resist that. I have set my king on the throne. You cannot thwart that. This king is not just any ordinary, ordinary ruler. This king is God's appointed ruler who represents him. Regarding Jesus, Jesus is not just one messenger from God. Jesus is God's anointed and appointed Messiah for the world. 
And so God is saying about the kings of Israel and God is saying about Israel's greatest king, the Messiah, Jesus, if you are resisting him, you are resisting me. Capiche? That's what he's saying. This is the statement. God himself is wanting to say to these rebellious rulers, I have set my king on the throne in Jerusalem. Nothing's going to change that. Notice here that God's response to the rebellion of these earthly powers is to install the Davidic monarchy. Now for centuries, that plan, like like this is how God's going to resist and, and stop the evil in the world, that plan must have felt for centuries like a very underwhelming plan. Because neither David nor any of his royal descendants were able to bring an end to the rebellion of earthly powers. In fact, oftentimes the kings of Israel were being bullied and beat up by all their pagan neighbors who had no regard for the Lord. And so I'm sure that over time, this must have just become discouraging for God's people. But family, there would come one mighty descendant a son of David, who would disarm the principalities and the powers of this present evil age, not through military conquest, but through a cross. Not wearing a royal crown of thorns, or or jewels rather, but a crown of thorns. All of the sinful rebellion of every single person throughout history who looks to King Jesus to save them was carried into Christ's death on the cross and buried with him forevermore. And for every person throughout the history of the world who detests Jesus and his work on the cross, they themselves will bear God's wrath for their sinful rebellion, cut off from the glory and the goodness of God forever. This brings us now to the third section where we see now the king speaking. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, what's going on here is the king is rehearsing God's promises to him. Um, Essentially, this is a rehearsing of God's covenant that he had made with David and David's descendants all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. It's the uh, establishment of the Davidic covenant, where again, God is making a covenant with David and all of the kings that would come after him. Here's what we read in 2 Samuel 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That was the promise that God had made to David and his descendants. And notice here in Psalm 2, the king, perhaps at his coronation ceremony, is rehearsing the main components of that covenant. God promises to be a father to the king, and the king is God's son. God promises peace and security and rest from all of Israel's enemies. Now here in Psalm 2, the vision is complete control over the nation's of the earth. All of the nations of the earth living in submission to the authority of God's king. To those rebellious earthly powers, God's king would break them or rule them, it says in verse 9, with a rod of iron. That's a picture of strength. Iron being the strongest material in the ancient world. He would rule them with this, this rod of iron. He goes on to say that God's king would He would dash or shatter these kings of the earth to pieces like a piece of pottery. Imagine just taking a ceramic bowl and just slamming it on the ground right now and just shattering into a thousand pieces. It's a picture of the fragility of these powerful kings that were opposing God's ruler. Now, of course, if this was a coronation poem for these kings in Israel's past, over time, I would imagine that it must have gotten so disappointing for them because with every successive ruler that was raised up in Israel, the hopes that they would actually rule over the earth just got weaker and weaker and weaker. Some scholars suggest that at the time that this poem was placed in its current place in the Psalter, right, right up front at chapter two, the Davidic dynasty was already in the past. And so what that meant was that any hope that these promises could come true must have been quite faint. And yet here's the irony. Israel's prophets consistently promised that one day there would come a Davidic king who would fulfill these extravagant promises that God had made to his people. Consider Isaiah 11. Here the great prophet Isaiah says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. 
This chapter goes on to talk about how through this descendant of Jesse, which is David's father, God would destroy the nations and usher in universal peace and prosperity. And so God's people were continuing to look forward to this Messiah, this ruler that God was going to raise up to sit on the throne of David and conquer the nations. And over time, many Jews would have looked at Psalm 2 with this kind of a messianic hope. In fact, as you get to John chapter 4, and that famous story of the woman at the well, Jesus has this dialogue with this woman, and they're arguing about spiritual things and where you should worship and all of that. And finally, the woman at the well says this in John 4, 25. She says, she goes, you know what? I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And we read, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Notice that she shared in this messianic expectation that there would come this one Messiah, this one anointed one who would make everything clear to them. And notice also how Jesus significantly identifies himself as the one who has been sent by God to fulfill this role. He's the anointed one. He's God's son. We see this at Jesus' baptism. The same thing at his transfiguration where God's voice says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We also see this in connection to his resurrection. We read this in Acts 13, 33. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now I would ask you this morning, if you can't sense a little bit of the disappointment at times that the Jews were feeling when they looked at the failures of their king, and we look right now at the rule of Christ in the world, don't you at some times go, Jesus, aren't you supposed to be in charge of everything? Why are things so unruly? Why are things so out of control? Why does it seem like the evil are in charge and the evil do prosper in this world? Sometimes it's tempting to ask ourselves, has Jesus really lived up to all the hype? Is Jesus really fulfilling these promises? Will Jesus really fulfill these promises. Family, we have to constantly be remembered that at Christ's first advent 2,000 years ago, he came as a lamb, the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But at Christ's second advent, when he returns, he's going to return not as a lamb, but as a lion who will destroy all wickedness, all rebellion, and all evil. And he will subdue the earth and establish complete righteousness and peace. And so like the Jews of old, you and I as Christians today live in this place of tension, knowing that God has promised us peace. God has promised us the end to evil, and yet it hasn't come yet. Psalm 2 is quoted in the book of Revelation many times in anticipation of the coming of Christ where Jesus will come as a lion. Jesus will establish eternal peace. God's people have always then looked forward in anticipation of Jesus coming back and fulfilling this promise in Psalm chapter 2. I don't know about you, but the world feels exhausting to me right now. 
I look out at the world and I feel like with every passing week and passing month, I just feel weighed down in my spirit. And there's that, that, that tension I was describing because I just look at out the world and I, and I say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And these things are not right. And righteousness is not ruling in our land. And it grieves my heart. But my heart is strengthened when I think about the fact that there will come a day when all rebellion, when all evil will be judged, when all those who are plotting and scheming and destroying people's lives and smirking at God with no intention of changing will be smashed to pieces like pottery shards. But that day is not yet. So the question is, why? Why is that day not here? Well, the scriptures teach us because God is patient. God is not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's how this great psalm concludes in this final section where we read the narrator's final thoughts. And in verses 10 through 12, he's going to conclude with three things, a warning, a call to repentance, and a promise of blessing. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. He's basically saying, you've been warned. I already told you the reality. God's seated on his throne, and he is going to rule over the nations. So you've been warned. But there's also this call to repentance. Because these things are true, the psalmist now, the narrator, is saying, therefore, those who are wicked need to repent. That's what's meant here when he says, kiss the sun. Right? In the ancient world, people, in, in an effort to show homage and submission to a ruler, they would oftentimes kiss the signet ring that was on the ruler's hand. Or maybe kiss the feet of a ruler. So the psalmist says, listen, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Submit yourself to him and to his rule. Instead of resisting God's anointed one, serve the Lord with fear. For those who do, there's a promise of blessing at the end of this psalm. And it's a blessing, I love this, not just for some people. It's a blessing for all who would take refuge in him. The Lord God is looking out across the nations of the earth, even right now as I speak. And God's heart is that the peoples of this world would repent. Even the wickedest among us, God is saying, if they would come to their senses and turn to my son, I would forgive them. I would bless them. They could find refuge in him. Of course, in the Old Testament, God promised that he would bless those nations that blessed Israel and curse those nations who cursed Israel. And so these old kings back in the day could experience some blessing by establishing good relations with Israel. But as we've seen, this psalm looks beyond that time period and it stands for all time as a warning and a promise to all the earth. And so friends, we're going to end now where we began with the question that this psalm presses on every single reader. Which kingdom will you align yourself with? Whose authority will you yield to in your life? Whose promises of strength and control and protection are you going to trust in your life? 
Is it going to be God and his kingdom or is it going to be some lesser king and kingdom of this world? Non-Christians might look within and say, I've got this. I'm going to be my own savior. I'm going to figure things out on my own. Non-Christians, they might look to some false god that they think could save them. They might look to some political savior and say, I'm, I'm banking my future on that. Unfortunately, many Christians are guilty of the same. Maybe I should do this when I say Christians. But today from Psalm 2, we are reminded of the futility of looking at any earthly power to ultimately save us. Friend, there is no moral reform that could save you from the wrath that is coming. There's no political party that can deliver you. There's no earthly empire that can secure your future. He who sits on his throne in the heavens laughs at all of our efforts to control history. Long after the United States is one more boastful earthly empire on the ash heap of human history, long after the Republican Party and the Democrat Party are forgotten on the earth, long after the stock market is no more and Bitcoin disappears, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will be alive and well. And so I want to challenge you this morning, choose to be on the right side of history. My prayer for myself this week, my prayer for all of us this week has been very simple. I've just been praying that God would convince all of us that the only unassailable kingdom belongs to Jesus and so blessed are those who belong to him. Amen. Let's pray. God, this morning you've given us a picture of your power, of your glory, of your might, of your sovereignty. And yet at the same time, a picture of your goodness and your grace and your love. Father, I pray for all of us that our hearts would be strengthened this morning. That even while the nations rage, that even while people plot and scheme and devise, Ultimately, it's all in vain. Because at the end of the day, you control history. At the end of the day, your plan and your appointed king, King Jesus, will rule and reign over the destinies of all people. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, we would once again align our hearts with these truths, that we would once again declare our allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for us that are already Christians, that you would remove anxiety, that you would remove fear, that we would not give in to frustration or anger that's unrighteous or being unkind or unloving, but that we would trust in you, Lord, that we would live like Jesus. Father, we also pray for any among us who have never put their faith in Jesus, Perhaps they've been spending their life trying to find something secure that they can bank their hope and their trust and their future on. Lord, we pray that this morning you would bring them to a place of faith in Jesus, recognizing that there is no solid ground except for the ground that is at the foot of the cross. 
And so, Lord, we, we pray that if there are any among us who do not know Jesus, that you would save them even now. Lord, we love you. We worship you for who you are and for what you've done for us and for what you still will do for us in the not-so-distant future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.